In recent weeks, I've had occasion to devote time to the study of the Gospel of John. And I've been struck again and again by the special character of the presentation of Jesus' relationship with women at that Gospel. And this I would like to share with you. To begin with, the first historical scene of the life of Jesus and the last are both dominated in a way by Mary, his mother. The first scene, of course, is the marriage feast at Cana and the last, the crucifixion and death of Jesus. In each of these, Jesus addresses his mother with the slightly strange Greek term, gunai. That is the Greek for roughly woman. It's not a rough term as it would be in English, nor is it a smooth term such as lady, which would be quite inappropriate. It's certainly not a common way for someone to address his mother. Jesus says to Mary, Gunai, what is that that they've run out of wine? What is that to you and to me? It's not rude. It's not even brisk. In Jesus' minimal response to his mother, enabling her to express her entire confidence in him, it's a scene opener to which Jesus will respond by the highly symbolic act of turning the six, note six, one short of seven, so the image of imperfection, like the devil's number, six, six, six. He turns the six water jars of Jewish ritual purification into the plentiful wine of the Messianic banquet. The scene is placed at the opening of the Gospel as a symbol of Jesus' entire work, the beginning of the Messianic banquet. To this corresponds the final scene of Jesus' life when he recommends his mother, Gunai again, recommends his mother to the beloved disciple. Only after this can Jesus say, in Greek, tetelestai, it is complete. The beloved disciple is certainly a symbolic figure. He appears four times in the Gospel, at the Last Supper, the Eucharist, next to Jesus, here at the cross, sharing the passion with Jesus, at the empty tomb, when he outruns Peter, both in movement and in faith and understanding. He understands the meaning of the empty tomb, whereas Peter doesn't. And then finally at the Lake of Galilee, where he is designated as the source and guarantee of the tradition. He's carefully nowhere named, nowhere restricted to any one person. To my mind, the beloved disciple is the disciple, the beloved disciple. That is, every Christian. He fulfills the Christian function of sharing the Eucharist, participating in the Passion, acknowledging the Resurrection, and passing on the Christian tradition. There's no point in speculating who this beloved disciple is, we're not meant to know, or rather, 
were meant not to know. He is the generalised picture of the Christian disciple. The scene in which the woman and the beloved disciple are recommended to one another is the foundation of the first Christian community. It's only after this that Jesus can breathe forth his spirit, or more accurately, hand over his spirit, presumably to the new community, the embryonic church just created. The bracketing of the gospel with scenes of Mary is only two of the examples of the interaction of the Johannine Jesus with women. A sharp contrast is the scene with the Samaritan woman, so tenderly and reflectively described. We're prepared for the reality and humanity of the description by the note that Jesus is tired from his journey as he sits by the well. But he certainly revives. The scene is a marked contrast to the previous dialogue, which is the dialogue with Nicodemus. These dialogues were a feature of John, running right through the Gospel. Note that they all follow the convention of Greek drama at the time, which does not represent more than two characters on the stage at any one time. So it's always a dialogue rather than a generalised conversation. The dialogue with the Samaritan is in marked contrast to that with Nicodemus, with Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel. Jesus is strict and rebukes Nicodemus for his lack of understanding, although, as often in John, Jesus' speech is inherently riddling. He almost provokes Nicodemus to misunderstand. How indeed can a man be born again? Must he re-enter his mother's womb? What is being born again from above? But in the following dialogue with the Samaritan woman, Jesus speaks in the same riddling way, but the whole dialogue is light-hearted and cheeky. Firstly, on the lips of the Samaritan woman herself, Oh, you're a Jew, and Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Then, oh, you have no bucket, so you can't give any water, let alone living water. If you know about my complicated marital situation, you must be a prophet. Are you a prophet? She answers her own question about whether Jesus is Messiah by running off to tell her friends about him and brings them along. Jesus enters into the spirit of the teaching of the teasing by his reference to living water welling up to eternal life. Then his further revelation that he knows about her marital situation and then teasing her about worshipping in the wrong place or in any or no place at all. At the same time, it's a vital revelatory dialogue leading up to the first of the great I am, in Greek, ego eimi, the great I am sayings. This is the occasion where in all the Gospels, Jesus' humour and light-hearted humour emerges most clearly. 
another occasion less explicit, more typical of the synoptic Gospels, is, of course, Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew, or she's called in Mark, or in Matthew she's called the Canaanite woman. And she comes back at him with the remark about dogs under the table wolfing the scraps. Again, Jesus seems to be more light-hearted with a woman than he is with men. Another aspect of Jesus' human relationships comes out very clearly with women, consisting in his affection for the family of Lazarus. His affection clearly extends to the whole family, including Lazarus, but the accounts of events are centred on the two sisters. Jesus returns from Judea, returns to Judea from the far side of the Jordan, although he, and even more so the disciples, is aware that this brings him into mortal danger. Ah, let's go and die with him, says Thomas. Jesus' interaction is all with the two sisters. It's at Mary's distress that Jesus is distressed in mind and profoundly moved and actually weeps. Perhaps this is inevitable because Jesus is well aware that he's going to rescue Lazarus himself from death by bringing him back to life. Nevertheless, it's the distress of the sisters rather than the situation of Lazarus, that moves him. It was, of course, also this Mary who indulged in the extravagant and expensive loving act of anointing Jesus' head for burial, an act which is given its full value in John, since the house was filled with the scent of the ointment. In Mark's account, Jesus replies with full generosity promising that wherever throughout the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be also told in remembrance of her. The relationship of this anointing by Mary of Bethany to the anointing of Jesus' feet with an alabaster jar of ointment at the house of Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7 by the unnamed woman who had a bad name in the town is a complicated question which should not distract us. Personally, I think that Luke has used an outline memory of the incident to illustrate his favourite theme of repentance and non-repentance by the hosting Pharisee. Finally, we must consider two stories where the silence of Jesus is the outstanding feature. The earlier of these, the story of the woman taken in adultery, is doubtfully Johannine, comes in the Gospel of John, but did he write it? It's absent from the best papyri and from two of the great 4th century manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. It's highly non-Johannine in style and vocabulary. It's best classed as a separate but historical incident. Later inserted into John's Gospel at this place, as a comment on Jesus' insistence that no one should be condemned without evidence. However, it's now in the Gospel of John and we'll take it as a historical record of Jesus' attitude. The most striking feature of all 
is Jesus' consideration for the accused woman, his refusal to judge her, by contrast to the vociferous condemnation by her accusers, first of the woman and finally of themselves, and Jesus' insistence that she judge herself. It's Jesus' insisting on the primacy, on the primacy of the individual conscience, he has no need of advancing any argument or counsel. His presence is sufficient. And he uses this also to protect the accused from the onslaught of the righteously indignant accusers. He just stays there, doodling on the ground, until both the accusers and the accused come to their senses and judge themselves. So it's the primacy of the individual conscience. My final example of the instance of Jesus' relationship with women in the Gospel of John is perhaps the most striking and the most beautiful. In the Johannine account of the empty tomb, the first witness to the empty tomb is Mary of Magdala. She doesn't inspect the tomb, she merely registers the fact that the stone has been moved away. Taking this as evidence that the body has been removed or stolen, she runs off to tell Peter and the beloved disciple. Then, seemingly, she returns to the tomb and stands there weeping. In her obviously distraught frame of mind, she sees someone whom she mistakes for the gardener. All Jesus needs to do is to pronounce her name, Mariam, the normal Aramaic or Hebrew form of what we translate as Mary. The relationship between them provides all she needs to know. In an instant, by that loving voice, she's transformed from an unbeliever who had no conception or hope of resurrection into being the first messenger of the resurrection. The stunning element is the power of that single word. It's so spoken as to instantly transform Mary from unbelief into the belief which she will run to promulgate as the first apostle of the resurrection. Whatever the prejudices of this period about the probative force of female testimony, Jesus has no interest in them. All kinds of ridiculous explanations have been proposed for the risen Christ's following command, don't cling to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. For instance, one explanation is that he was naked and felt embarrassed. I see it as intended to show that any future contact with Jesus will not be on the normal bodily level to cling to Jesus physically has no more point. Nevertheless, at this point, Jesus in a sort of, is in a sort of hiatus state betwixt and between. Physical contact is no longer the way to express and practice belief. When Jesus has ascended to the Father, all contact with him will be through the Spirit whom the Father and the risen Christ will send. God bless you.